Welcome to 66 Lessons for Life, the weekly radio program recorded live at the Naples Conference Center in Naples, Florida. Taught by our teacher, John Garepa, an attorney who guides us in the way of wisdom with a biblical worldview. You're invited to join us for the study. We are going to continue this week studying the issue of the uh, understanding the mercy of God. This follows on the study of Joshua, where we saw how God protected the Jewish people. And when they listened and obeyed God, how victory came their way. And how when they disobeyed God, victory was taken away from them. And how they were punished. And yet when they repented and brought the sin out of their camp and put themselves right with God, that God restored them and fully gave them victory. And now we've studied over the past year, we've studied Moses, we've seen the, the protection of the Jewish people as God brought them out of Egypt. Uh, we saw them. God protects them for 40 years in the desert, wandering, several million people wandering in the desert, no water, no food, and yet God miraculously gives it to these people. And yet God wanted these people to be the priests of the world. And so what we see here is that when the Jewish people went away from their calling, did not follow God, God withdrew his blessings. But when they came and close to God and drew close to God, followed his words, followed his commandments and his ordinances, God poured blessings into their life. And so we're going to study today and get a full understanding of the mercy of God, the mercy of God. And what we see when we do this is we understand that God, mercy of God is a defining characteristic of God. And so many times we have been taught, have been led by people that, that show the wrath of God, the anger of God, and in his sovereignty, the, the uh, mentality of punishing man without understanding truthfully the unbelievable mercy of God that flows out of God. And the biggest aspect of understanding the mercy of God is salvation alone, that God would bankrupt heaven. And you can understand this, that from the very foundation of the world, and I want you to get a sense for this, that as God is creating the universe, and there is Jesus and the Holy Spirit there, the, the, tri, the, the Trinity in place, and God knows through his foreknowledge what he's going to do. He's going to create man in his image, uh, and he knows because he has the foreknowledge that in his creation, who he will give free will to, that, they, that the creation will ultimately shake his fist and spit in his eye. And yet, God will have mercy. Can you imagine? Honestly, God will have mercy on this miserable creation that will repudiate God, because if it were us, well, I can't speak for you, I'll speak for me. All right? If it were me, I'd take my big hand and I'd squash them. That's what I would do. And I'd start all over again. Honestly, I would start all over again. And I want you to understand that God could have done that. He could have done that. But instead, what does he do? What does he do? He looks at Jesus and Jesus seeing this. And Jesus volunteers, I am sure, volunteers to become the ultimate sacrifice for this group of unrepentant people. I will go. I will be the savior. I will allow myself to be sacrificed. 
on a cross. Now, all of this is all in the foreknowledge of God. He sees it all. And so even before the first molecule is created, God understands that this is what's going to happen. And Jesus Christ indicates that he will step up and he will be the sacrifice. And so I want you to understand the mercy of God. The mercy of God evidenced through the fact that he did not destroy humanity. Evidenced by the fact that he sent Jesus Christ. And evidenced in the, in the act of Jesus giving up his life on the cross. All of that is within the mercy of God to, to uh, mankind. And basically, all mankind had to do was make the correct choice. I choose you, God. I choose you, Jesus. I recognize that I'm desperate, that I'm lost. And when man makes that choice, God pours the grace and he pours the mercy down. And so you see this in so many ways. So I want to make sure that, that at this point uh, in our studies that we get a clear understanding about who God is and how he does this. Um, and turn with me, if you would, take a look at Exodus chapter 15. And here it is, the message of God to the Jewish people, speaking to them in verse 13. In your unfailing love, underline unfailing, in your unfailing love you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength you will guide them to your holy dwelling. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish, anguish will grip the people of Philistia. And so you see this, the people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall upon them. And so what you see here is an, in, an indication early on to God's chosen people that God will have extraordinary, extraordinary mercy. But, but God's mercy is covenantal. All right? It means that God expects a certain code of conduct. In order to have God's mercy pour into your life, there has to be repentance. There has to be an acknowledgement of sin, an acknowledgement of, Lord, I failed. And when we do that, we see that. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7. This is all within the understanding of the mercy of God. Deuteronomy uh, chapter 7, verse 12. If you pay attention to these laws and are careful to follow them, the Lord your God will keep his covenant of love with you. And understand that. It's a covenant. It's a covenant, meaning a promise. God doesn't break his promise. So what you see here is God is saying, I will love you forever. I will have mercy upon you forever if you follow my laws. Verse 13, he will love you and bless you and increase your numbers. He will bless the fruit of your womb, the crops of your land, your grain, new wine and oil, the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks in the land that he swore to your forefathers, forefathers to give to you. You will be blessed more than any other people. None of your men or women will be childless, nor any of your livestock without young. The Lord will keep you free from every disease. He will not inflict on you the horrible diseases you knew in Egypt, but he will inflict them on all who hate you. You must destroy all the peoples the Lord your God gives over to you. Do not look on them with pity and do not serve their gods, for they will be a snare to you. Now, let's understand this. This does not mean you won't be sick. All right. This does not mean that you won't be sick. It does not mean that you will not have hardship. Let me make sure I, I give that to you. 
I don't believe in a prosperity gospel. I don't believe that, that, that once we become Christians, all we have is a red carpet right into heaven. I don't believe that. But what it means is an indication of the mindset of God. He wants to bless you. He wants to give things to you that you never could possibly understand. He wants to take care of you. He wants to love you. And you see this. And you see this in a historical fashion when you see what he did with the Jewish people. He wanted them to be the priests of this world. He wanted them to be the missionaries of this world. And everything that he did was to constrain them and to comport them into that role. And so it's amazing when you understand that. And so his mercy is a principal characteristic of who God is. Uh, and it is an eternal characteristic, meaning this. God's mercy never changes. It is eternal. It is forever. It is unbounded. But it is only for those who have given their hearts to him. Um, and, and this is important uh, to understand this. One example of that is in Genesis chapter 15. Turn there if you would. Genesis 15 verse 12. And here's a picture where God is speaking to Abram as God has, is now promising Abram that, that his uh, inheritance will be unbounded that there will be more people that will come from Abraham than the, the sand on the, on the shores of the ocean, that he will give them the promised land. And now Abraham make, God makes an incredible statement to Abraham. If you look there at verse 12, it reads as follows. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dread, dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. Now stop. Now you might be saying, well, wait a minute, that doesn't seem very merciful. What is the prosperity in that? Well, the prosperity in that is that God has a bigger radar screen, a greater vista than you do. He's teaching the Jewish people what it means to have him as their God. And sometimes it's a hard lesson, okay? Sometimes the two-by-four is, is needed. Sometimes, I told you that. Sometimes it's a soft whisper. Sometimes it's a little louder. And then finally it's a two-by-four. And what you see here is that the Jewish people are being given a two-by-four to teach them who God is. And yet they still didn't really understand. Verse 14, But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. And you know that. That when they left Egypt... They came out with untold riches because God had directed the Egyptians to give them their possessions. And so they're leaving Egypt, not only with their lives, but with untold riches. All right. And, and then afterwards, verse 15, you, however, Abram, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, meaning the fourth generation of when they left Egypt. Right, which is about 40 years. They calculated then a generation of 10 or 15 years. Your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Stop. Underline it. That's what I want to speak to you about. The sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. What does it mean? It means this, that the occupants 
of the promised land are the Amorites. I've given that land to your descendants, Abraham. Now, the deed I'm giving you is 450 years away from today. I could give you the deed now, but the sin of the occupants has not yet fully ripened. Folks, that is the mercy of God. That he would look at a pagan people. He would look at a pagan people who were involved in all kinds of despicable acts, who were not in any way evidencing a heart for what would be considered the, ca the characteristics of God. In fact, we know that they were involved in human sacrifice. And he would say, not yet. Not yet. Not now. And so what I would say to you is as you look out into this world and you see uh, surpassing evil all over the place, I want you to imagine that God is saying their sin has not yet ripened. Really. And that's the mercy of God. That he would even extend that mercy to people who are pagans, who have not given up, not given their heart, who have not repented. But there will come a day when the curtain comes down. Now do you wonder, now does it make sense when you come in and you see God giving instructions to Joshua and the Jewish people to go in and kill everything? You understand? Kill everything? Does the kill everything make sense to you now? Because what's happening? What's happening is there is a metastatic cancer in that land where there is evil in everything. And God has determined, because it's a theocracy, uh, Israel is a theocracy, Israel is going to be the shining light to the world of who God is and what God stands for, that he will repudiate sin and evil. It has to go. And it all falls within the mercy of God. And so you understand this, and it really, really, to me, is so expansive. And so I want to also address a couple of misconceptions that you will hear people talking about. Uh, and one of those misconceptions is the issue of God hardening the heart of Pharaoh. Many of you have learned growing up, as you've studied this story, you've heard the term, well, God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. And you have been taught, well, what did that mean? That meant that God determined that Pharaoh was evil and Pharaoh was going to punish the Jewish people. He wasn't going to let them go. So God hardened his heart so he couldn't turn away from that decision. He had to go down that route because God made him go down that route. God gave him, gave him to his inclinations. That is not theologically correct. And if you understand the way it really is, then you will understand uh, the mercy of God. God gave Pharaoh every opportunity to repent before the hardening took place. Uh, turn, if you would, to Exodus chapter 7, verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. Uh, and, and then look, you see that, follow that up, if you would, to uh, chapter 8, verse 15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. And so what's happening here, in, in between these two passages, is that God is extending Pharaoh an opportunity to, re, to repent. 
He is allowing time to take place. He is not hardening his heart early on. He is allowing Pharaoh an opportunity to, to repent, to ask forgiveness, and to change his mind. And if he did that, none of those punishments, none of those plagues would have been visited on Pharaoh. It is only after Pharaoh refuses to yield that God then says that uh, your heart is hardened and you will not be able to deviate from that chain, from that uh, thought. And so what you see here is that the same sun that melts the ice also hardens the clay. You understand what I just said? The same sun that melts the ice also hardens the clay. What does that mean? It means that God is dispensing his love and his mercy. But unless you as the recipient have the heart that receives it, has a heart that is asking for repentance, that when you do that, it melts the ice. But if in fact you have determined that you will not accept the mercy of God, that you will not follow his way, then that same sun hardens the clay. Amen? An important understanding about this. That's what goes on. It's not as if God is specifically saying, that's it, You're, you have decided and now I've closed the door. It's that you yourself have hardened. You refuse to accept God. You refuse to accept the hand held out to you. You refuse to accept the mercy and love. And you repudiate it because you will not submit. You will not submit because you're Pharaoh. And so you understand this. Uh, and so uh, this issue is brought out in detail in Romans chapter 9, in which God speaks about the overtures that he makes to, to humanity. Turn, if you would, to Romans chapter 9, because, I'm, as always, I prove the Old Testament through the New Testament. And that's what God wants us to do. It's one book, not two books. Verse 22, what if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? Let's stop and consider that verse. What if God, what if God choosing to show his wrath and make his power known bore with great patience the object of his wrath prepared for destruction? He could have done it, but he, he refrains with enormous patience. And I just gave you an example of that, of the sin of the Amorites. I'm going to wait 450 years. Continuing on in verse 23. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. So there it is. He did it. He restrained himself, even when he could have destroyed it, the objects of his wrath. They deserved destruction. They were outside his will. They, they continued to be pagans, and yet he restrained himself. He did it with Pharaoh. He restrained himself. But there gets to be a point that the sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. That's what it is. And you don't ever want to be in that position. You don't ever want to be in that position. That's why I say to you 
that you need to have an ongoing prayer life with God. That yes, you're saved. Yes, you've given your heart to God. But now the question is, Lord, lead me on a daily basis. And the only way you can do this, the only way you can do this is to have an ongoing prayer life with God. Uh, and as I said yesterday, that means in many ways having 100 conversations a day with God. 100 conversations. Lord, where do you want me to be? How do you want me to live? How do you want me to speak? Who do you want me to speak to? Where do you want me to go? Even, Lord, how do you want me to give my money away? How do you want me to give my money away? Because you're always being asked. There's a million different things that come your way. But the question is, is it God's will? Is it God's will? You need to pray about this. All of this demonstrating the, the sovereignty of God and the will of God in your life. And so you see this. And so what you see here when you read Romans is, is that uh, you become the vessels of wrath. Why? Because you have rejected his mercy. Can I be any clearer? You have become a vessel of wrath because you have rejected the overtures and the reaching out by God of mercy. Pharaoh, I don't want it. I don't want to hear it. And in Romans, the same thing. And the Amorites, 450 years of sinning. I don't want to, I don't want to change. I don't want to be different. And so the same sun that would melt the ice hardens the clay. And so that's how you become. That's how you become uh, an element of, of, of rejection and not getting the mercy of God. I want to make sure we understand this, that God's mercy is overflowing. It is an essential element of who God is. And when you realize that from the very foundation of the world, that Jesus and God stood there, looked at what the creation would be, knew that the creation would reject God, and yet even before it all came together, it was known that Jesus would come to be the savior of this miserable race of people. All right? This miserable race of people. Jesus would say, I'll step out. I will become the sacrifice. And God says, I will allow you to go. I will bankrupt heaven for this group of people, our creation, because there will be a remnant there will be a remnant who will accept it, who will reach out, who will ask for help, who will love us. And because of that remnant, I will save them. The mercy of God. And I'm going to prove it even more so. Turn to Romans 9, verse 13. Another example of bad theology. All right? Bad theology. I mean, one of the things I hope you get here when you come with me is you get a fair interpretation of how I think Scripture needs to be read. Um, and, and I think it's important, because I don't come from a denominational perspective. I told you I, I, I am not a denominationalist. I am a gospel person, all right? I believe in a broad reading of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't come from it with a speci specific denominational view. Because ultimately, sometimes, and I will never say anything ill about any denomination, but what I have found in life is that every denomination has what I call a hook. You know what I mean by a hook? It's this 
central identifying mark that we stand for. Sometimes it's a certain kind of baptism. Sometimes it relates to speaking in tongues. Sometimes it relates to some other element of Reformed theology. Whatever it is, whatever it is, you can almost identify uh, a denomination by what I call the hooks. Uh, and I'm not commenting on the hooks. I'm not doing that. I want to give you a fair, broad view of what the Bible says, and then you, through the grace of God and the Holy Spirit, read and come to your own determination. You don't need me to do that. But hopefully what I'm giving you here will help you. Look here at verse 13. And this is an example of what I would say is misinterpretation. Verse 13, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. Now let's stop at that. Well, wait a minute, John. Wait a minute. Does it say Esau I hated? Jacob I loved? Is that what it says? Because you read that and you go, oh, God, wow. Oh, God, you hated? That, that seems like a rough way to start life. That's a rough way to start life. Jacob, I loved Esau, I hated. Well, you know, you've got to drill down. You've got to look down and see if that's correct. Well, actually, in the, in the original wording, when that comes up in Genesis, there's no indication at all in Genesis when you read about Esau and Jacob, there's not a single word that says that God hated Esau. But the words that you see there come out of Malachi chapter 1. Now look at Malachi chapter 1. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 1, verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you asked, how have you loved us? This is chapter 1. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord said? Yet I have loved Jacob. But Esau I have hated and have turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance in the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will build the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called wicked land a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. So what is going on here? What is going on here is that God is not saying he hated Esau when Esau was born or walked uh, and, and loved Esau more than, than he uh, hated Esau more than he loved Jacob. What's going on here is God is referring to the descendants of Esau, who will become the Edomites, the Edomites, and the Edomites will become one of the hated, hated people who will persecute the Jewish people constantly for hundreds and hundreds of years. And so what you see here is that evil flowed out of the descendants of Esau. God never hated Esau. God doesn't do that. He gives us every possible opportunity, every possible opportunity to accept him. And you know the story of Jacob and Esau. You know that. Esau did not have a reverence for the things of God. And so he sold that birthright, the right to receive the blessing from the father. He sold it for a, for a bowl of lentils uh, to Jacob. Now, God didn't hate Esau at that moment, but he would hate what Esau would become through his descendants. 
And so this is important to know. Hate is a, and a term, and as I've researched it, hate is a Hebrew idiom. Hate is an Hebrew idiom for loving less. How do you like that? So it's only when you study these other translations that you get a full meaning of what it means. It doesn't mean I hate it. It means I love them less because of what they would become. The same sun, the same sun that melts the ice, hardens the clay. And so you see this. And so I want you to understand this. And as you understand this mercy, um, and this flows into us because just as God dispenses his mercy to us, God expects you to dispense your mercy to the people around you. And your mercy uh, is best known as forgiveness. You got that? That's the human analogy of the mercy of God. God is defined as merciful as he pours his mercy down on you and melts the ice. He then expects you to become forgiving, to have a forgiving spirit, uh, and to dispense this uh, in every aspect of your life. And so now the question becomes this, prayer, prayer. How does prayer fit into this whole riddle? What is the aspect of prayer? And what I've decided and learned and studied as I've reviewed this is that prayer is not a condition for God giving mercy. You heard what I just said. Prayer is not a precondition for God giving mercy. But rather, prayer puts us in a condition and a position where God desires to give us mercy. Does that make sense? In other words, the receptacle is now in a position to receive the gift. It's not that you've shaken the gates of heaven. Oh, God, I need you to hear me, Lord. Oh, what a mighty prayer that was. Yeah, you got my attention. Some of us think like that, don't we? Yeah! Oh, God! And instead, you understand that the act of praying, the act of praying as you are, you know, bowing your head and, and reaching out to God, that act is changing your heart. It's changing yourself. It is, it is re-correlating who you are as you're making that prayer. Now, all of a sudden, it's not me, 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 me. What can I get? I need this. I want you to be a concierge for me. But as you're praying and you're doing this and you're praying for so many different things, God sees your heart being changed. And as he sees your heart being changed, it now says to God, now the condition is appropriate for this person to receive mercy. Oh, my Lord, what a mighty God we have. When you understand how this works, prayer changes us and puts us in a position where God's essential and unchanging mercy can flow into us. Can you imagine that? 
Prayer, every time you pray and you think you've got a laundry list of things you're praying for and you're going through this, I want you to understand that each word that you utter is changing yourself. Is changing yourself. And God sees that change. And as God sees that change, he begins to pour mercy and love into you. It changes us. And as a result, God flows his love and mercy into it. Prayer is not a means of overcoming God's reluctance. You got that? That's a big one. Oh, God, I know you don't want to do this. Oh, I know you don't want to do this, but I need it. Oh, I need it. I know I'll get you to change your mind when you see how much I need it. You understand how many of us pray like that? Oh, yeah, I'm going to get God to change. Instead, God is looking. Have you changed? Have you changed? Are you different? Are you the same guy that I saw two years ago? Or is there a difference in you now? Is your heart different? Do I see love? Do I see forgiveness? Because if I see those things, then I'm going to pour my mercy in love into a vessel that has changed. Can I get an amen on this? It's important to understand this. So prayer is not a means of overcoming God's reluctance but a means by which God takes advantage of our willingness to receive his mercy. I've changed God. I'm different. I may not even know that I'm different. I may think that in many ways I'm the same old John, but in many ways I'm not, and you know that. You've seen my heart. You know that my heart hurts and reaches out and wants to help others. You know that I hurt for the lost. And so God says, it's not that your prayer is changing my reluctance. I want to give you everything. Why would a God that bankrupted heaven to send Jesus to this world, why would he deny you anything that you really needed? Amen? Amen. Let's understand that. Truthfully, if you think that God uh, loves you, do you think he would deny you something that he thought was in your best interest? He would never deny you something that was in your best interest. But here's the thing, in your puny mindset, you can, you're can you lucky if you see 50 feet down the road. 50 feet, I need this, God. And God knows, yeah, you need it. And if I gave it to you, your life would be miserable. It would be ruinous. Your spiritual life would be desperate. We'd never see you in church again. You'd never be praying again. Yeah, you need this. Bail me out of this. Help me out of this. God, you don't know how much I need this. Instead, God is saying, I want to see your heart. Are you prepared to receive the mercy and love that I want to pour into you? The same sun, the same sun that melts the ice, hardens the clay. And so you see this. And, and, and the greatest picture of understanding is that God is not only merciful, to the repentant, but he is also wrathful upon the unrepentant. That's God. He's also wrathful to the unrepentant. I've given you the examples. It could be hundreds of years. It could be hundreds of years. But eventually the curtain comes down because he's God and you're not. And so even as you read these stories and find it difficult to understand 
how God would direct the people, the Jewish people, to walk through and destroy every living thing of the territory that they're in. Only God knows why he wants utter destruction reached upon people after hundreds and hundreds of years of patiently waiting for a change of heart. Patiently waiting to see if that same sun will melt the ice. And when it doesn't, the curtain comes down. And so God tried to teach the Jewish people this lesson in so many ways, and it started early on. It started early on when God explained how the Ark of the Covenant would be built and how on the Ark of the Covenant covenant there would be a mercy seat. How do you like that? That's the terminology. That's what God called it, the mercy seat. The mercy seat where man would meet God right there in the Ark of the Covenant where there's a cherubim on the left and a cherubim on the right with their wings folded in. And there in between them would be the mercy seat of God. And how all of the prayers of the Jewish people would be reached out to God on that mercy seat. Where the sacrifice would take place on that mercy seat. That God would pour his mercy into the Jewish people if they lived in accordance with what he said and directed. And how that mercy seat became the foreshadowing of Jesus Christ on the cross. And you understand this. You understand this, that that's what God is about. Demonstrating, I am mercy, I am love, but I want to see a people that are ready to receive the mercy and love. I want to see a repentant heart. I want to see a vessel that's ready to receive it. And your prayer life is indicating to me that yes, you are ready to receive it. Yes, you are ready to receive it. I can see it. You're changed. You're not the same John. And so I will pour this out. But if I see that you don't pray, if I see that you don't repent, if I see that you're still clinging to yourself, that you refuse to submit, that you're the same old way that you were before, then you will not be the recipient of the mercy of God. It's that simple. Don't overcomplicate it. You don't need to have a a Ph.D. philosopher up here explaining this to you, how to have a happy life. I love that. Let me read about 50 books of how to have a happy life. I've just given you in less than 40 minutes the secret of how to have a happy life. All right? You want to have a happy life? Here's happiness. Here's happiness that resonates on multiple levels. Okay? Resonates on multiple levels. And you can give it to your children. And to your grandchildren. And God has proven himself over and over and over again. I love you. I care for you. I knew you before the world was created. I knew you would be a sa- need a savior. I knew that I would bankrupt heaven in order to give you that savior. And all I needed to see was that you recognized you needed me. And that you would open your heart in prayer. And prove that you were ready to receive the mercy that I wanted to give you. And when we do, happiness flows. Happiness flows. And blessings flow. Not just to you, to your children. Not just to to a small part of your life. To every part of your life. And everything that you do. Happiness. The most profound happiness. Not necessarily your bank account. Not necessarily your house. But in the most meaningful, profound ways. The eternal happiness of life. Knowing that God loves you and cares for you and will never see you go wrong 
and that you will someday stand with him and see him as he puts your, his arms around you. Can I get an amen? amen? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I thank you for these words. Lord, how they've lifted us up. Lord, I thank you for this gift of mercy. I thank you that you are merciful towards us. And Lord, each and every one of us now recognizes what we need, that we need to have a prayer life that shows you that we are changing. A prayer life that recognizes that it's not that we're shaking the gates of heaven, but rather we're shaking the gates of our heart. And that our own hearts are changing and becoming what you want us to be. And that when you see this, you pour it into our lives. Lord, bless these men. Bless our people this week. Protect them wherever they go. And let them come back safely to continue the study of your word. We put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to 66 Lessons for Life, the men's Bible study taught by John Garippa and recorded live at the Naples Conference Center in Naples, Florida. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding so that you, the man of God, would be thoroughly equipped for every good work. For more information about the program or attending the Naples Men's Bible Study at the Naples Conference Center, go to our website at 66lessonsforlife.com.